0: hello and welcome to the mariners library with me chris Stanmore major in this episode we're continuing the cruises of the joan by w e sinclair we're on part 10 we We're beginning the third part of the book and that puts us in chapter 16 now, if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there for five dollars a month you can help support the podcast and we can keep these books in the hands of sailors for many years to come now on with the story Part three, 1926, the Baltic. Chapter 16, London to Copenhagen. In 1926, the Joan sailed to the Baltic. She went there by agreement with Mr. R.M. Jackson, who joined me for the first three weeks. She was to start the way the wind blew her. If it was easterly, we were going to go down the channel, and if it was westerly, we were going to go to the Baltic. The westerly winds were taking their turn in June, and we went with them. Our first passage from Erith to Skagen was the longest, and in order to keep the boat sailing continuously day and night, we adopted the usual system of watches, four hours on and four off. My partner did not like this system, but as he could suggest none better, he stood his watch regularly with real or apparent cheerfulness. My own cheerfulness was often neither real nor apparent. The distance to Skagen is close on 600 miles, And we took nine days to sail it. In the present century, this is a long time to spend at sea. This does not mean that fair weather sailing possessed no interest for us. On the contrary, we preferred winds that drove us with ease and certainty to our destination. Whenever the Joan was fortunate enough to make a passage in these conditions, the sail afforded the crew great pleasure, improved their health and temper, and encouraged them to continue the pursuit of the sport. Neither of us found a moment hang heavily, for there was always plenty to do. For the man on duty, time passed quickly in steering and watching, while for the man off duty, time passed still more quickly in cooking, cleaning ship, navigating and sleeping. Healthy monotony is good for the nerves. One lady I know recommends sailing on a small yacht on this account. However jumpy, hysterical or overwrought she was, a few days on a boat made her as steady as a rock, she puts it down in great measure to being so frightened that she had no time to think of her ordinary daily worries. Neither Jackson nor I had any worries. At least I had none myself. I expect our nerves got toned up enough to stand years of worry in the future. The last English mark we saw was Smith's Knoll on Sunday, June the 18th, and we made a landfall on the west coast of Jutland on Friday the 24th off the Linvig Light. Our true position was not quite where we had calculated it to be from our observations. I will say no more about this, although I am capable of inventing several excellent reasons to explain it. By noon next day, however, we knew to a mile or two where we were and at that point we had to begin reefing down. We hove to after a few hours. It blew harder and harder and I began to dislike the look of things. We knew our course and we might have run, but the waves were big, bigger than I liked them to be and I thought it was foolish to run on our course when that course was near the land and the winds and the current made that land more or less a lee shore. It would have been right enough if we could have kept on a beeline until we came to the score light, but how could we be sure of doing that? If we had to heave to under our tiniest sail or even with a sea anchor, we ought to be further away from the land, and so while we had still the chance, we hove to under a small mainsail and jib and let the boat work her way slowly north from the shore. But all the time, she was being carried up the Skaga Rack by the wind and waves and stream. By nightfall, the wind had increased so much that we were compelled to lower our mainsail. We then hove to under foresail, and for a few hours we ran under foresail, and I rejoiced to learn how safely and easily the yacht moved over the big breakers. During this period, we took an hour each at the tiller. Jackson flopped on the floor at once and spent the whole of his leisure hour resting or sleeping in his wet clothes. I always took mine off and turned in on the bunk for a proper rest. This plan paid, and, too, I ate something each time. Jackson did not. He tried it, but the food refused to be swallowed. He couldn't endure the sight of it, he said. When we hove to and could both turn in on our bunks in a proper seamanlike manner, I made a saucepan full of hot porridge. Jackson found he could tackle this, and afterwards he used to swear by it. When he came with me the next year, he insisted on buying quantities of oatmeal. At last, we were so wet and tired that we hove to under mizzen and fore and put out our sea anchor so that we might both be able to feed and sleep. After some 40 hours of thus trying not to go up the Skaga I worked out our position by dead reckoning, and this put us a dozen miles north of the score. In the circumstances, this was an alarming position. We had seen nothing of the land for two days. The sailing directions warned all vessels against heaving to in this quarter. The current was strong and ran direct to the rocky coast of Norway 30 miles further on, and these shores, they said, were frequently the destruction of those foolish vessels that neglected the advice. We went carefully over all the figures in our DR, hoped fervently that the answer was correct, set a trysail and sailed south. Fortune was with us. Our DR was a phenomenally correct one, and our words when we saw the score lighthouse loomed up in the mist expressed our satisfaction. It took us several hours to beat up into Skagen harbour, for by the time we had hoisted our mainsail and really made up our minds to go there, we were a long way to leeward. My previous experiences of small harbours had been confined to a few around the English coasts, and what with varying streams across the entrance and the fact that so many of them dry out at low water, I had never come to enjoy the process of entering or leaving them. Even when you are safely in and your boat is tied up, you are burdened with ever worrying attention to its safety. Your fenders must require adjustment every hour or so. The boat must be carefully tended as she takes the ground. You are sure to find a few of your fellow countrymen prone to hostility. It is seldom that you can leave your boat without locking things tight. She gets filthy dirty and there are no apparent means to dispose of the refuse that accumulates. Lastly, the official sailing directions describe a moderately good harbour as a place to avoid so that you can imagine what they say about a harbour of which they do not approve. And there are few that meet their genuine approbation. Skagen was dismissed in a few words and it was only because we were wet and tired and the next harbour was a long way off that we finally decided to turn back there. Skagen turned out to be the ideal harbour for the Joan. Ten feet of water, pretty well everywhere. No rise and fall of the tide that we ever noticed. No currents in the harbour, whatever there may have been outside. It was easy of entrance, easy to manoeuvre in when you were inside, perfectly protected, and you tied alongside a wooden key where you could step ashore whenever you liked. Once your warps and fenders were in position, they required no further attention, and it was clean, wholesome and picturesque we bathed in it. When we first entered we moored between two dolphins and not knowing anything of the customs or regulations of the harbour, we went to sleep. Next morning the harbour master rowed off to us and we showed him the ship's papers. He took a rope and towed us to the quayside where we moored in comfort. Then he lifted his hat for the second time and departed and we saw him no more. There were no dues, no tips and no troubles. Jackson and I, the first morning, walked into Skagen to change some money and buy postcards and a dinner. Changing money was easy. We walked into a bank, which may have been the only bank for all I know, handed over a pound note and meekly took what they chose to give us in return. Buying postcards was also an easy matter. We walked into the first shop that displayed them, picked out what we wanted and spread some money on the counter for the shopman to take their value. Of course, we asked him first how much they were, but As he had to guess our meaning, and we had to guess his answer, we found the action quicker than the word. Then we licked the corner and showed him the wet spot. He laughed and gave us stamps for which he again sorted out our coins. The cards being addressed, he instructed us where to post them, and we understood at least the first direction, for he pointed up the street. As we were unable to find a cook shop that looked likely to provide a cheap dinner, we entered a hotel which had been recommended to us. A girl inquired what we wanted, I suppose so, at least because it was the only thing a sensible girl would do. We tried her in English and German. We pointed to our mouths, which we opened and shut, as though we were famished. She nodded pleasantly and fetched her manager, who, after testing us in all the languages at her command, concluded that we were hungry and said, "Bifsteak." Well, it's got to be a steak, I suppose, said Jackson. Our combined stock of gibberish wouldn't be able to get us anything else. We were served with a large steak and fried onions decorated with a couple of eggs. I thought the dish a pretty picture, but our appetites destroyed the picture rapidly. We ate everything they gave us and paid the bill, which came to three and sixpence apiece. Later in the day, we grew thirsty and roamed the place trying to find a beer shop. Our first essay was unfortunate. We had to drink a pot full of coffee and eat cakes and pay up. Jackson spoke his thoughts aloud. We'd better be more careful next time. Surely they sell beer somewhere. Most seaports have beer shops next door to the boats. The quayside is generally lined with them. I wonder if Denmark is a dry country. We wandered and examined many shops in vain until I saw one labelled Vinstew. The first syllable seemed familiar in spite of an unattractive nature of the second. The proprietor was a pleasant little old man who served us with bottles of Pilsner, stood us a drink of schnapps and English stout because we were foreigners and because he got on well with Jackson. He told us all about his son and seemed pleased with our interest in his family affairs although he grew frantic and tired with his efforts to make us understand they were i must say futile efforts at the end of them all neither of us had an inkling of what he had been telling us ignorance of the local language was the cause of some inconvenience and much amusement during the cruise often we met people who spoke english and occasionally their knowledge was useful More often it was the cause of deeper misunderstanding, for they were so proud of their supposed ability that they thought I was a fool not to understand them, while they were convinced that they understood what I said. One at least of these conclusions was incorrect. A young man, a Dane, whose acquaintance I made later in Copenhagen, came with me to Stockholm. He had learnt some English at school, but we never understood one another in the slightest degree His spoken English, when I could understand it, was composed of utterly useless sentences. He would say quite intelligibly, Have you some cake? It was good enough English, but he spent the entire time aware of the fact that I did not have any cake. When he wanted to get a real answer to a real question, he found the quickest way was for him to write his question in Danish, and for me to translate it by the aid of a dictionary into English. He would then take his turn with the dictionary and end with an answer which was often right but it was of no importance. He took his turn with the tiller and I got a chance to sleep without worrying, for in the open waters he knew the ropes as well as I did. He was always cheerful and did his full share of the work. Sailing from Skagen to Copenhagen, a distance of 147 miles, occupied us the best part of two days. Most of it was fair sailing and uneventful and therefore the pleasanter, but we lost ourselves in the Kattegat before the second night came. We found ourselves nearer the Swedish coast than we thought we ought to be, and anhalt, an island we intended to pass close by on our course we never caught a glimpse of. We passed near a buoy and failed to locate it on the chart, and our dead reckoning placed us where we obviously were not. We gave up guessing and waited till nightfall so that we could see where we were by means of the lights. We found that we were a long way past Anholt and heading directly for the Cullen light which marks the entrance to the sound. We passed by Elsinore and along the Danish coast and entered the harbour of Copenhagen in the early afternoon. Knowing nothing of the place, we considered that the Royal Danish Yacht Club should be our objective, and we quickly found it. A man, perceiving that we were of the Red Ensign and were seeking a berth, invited us to enter a little yacht basin, and we accepted the invitation. He towed us into a water garden. All in a ring were some sixty yachts, more or less of Joan's size, though more fashionable in figure and complexion. We were pulled as far as a pretty red buoy, to which we were helped to tie our bows. And we were about to tie stern two to the garden's edge, when a gentleman, loud and angry, dashed at us in a rowing boat and untied our head-warp. He made a great impression on our helpers, and he appeared to be the gardener of the lake, and he waved us scornfully away to the outer river. We went... We sailed up the river a little way, saw no signs of a convenient place for anchoring where we might get ashore, and we returned. As we passed the yacht garden, we were offered a mooring outside and took it. Sometime during the evening, a visitor came who spoke English. We told him of our troubles, received his sympathy, and he advised us to go into another little harbour close by where we should be more at ease. On Sunday morning, we discovered this other harbour where we tied alongside a quay and were happy. We wandered into the town that afternoon, found a beer shop and a restaurant, and tried to grasp the Danish system of paying for your dinner, plus a tax for eating it, plus a tip to the waiter. We sailed off about noon next day to Malmo, on the opposite shore of the Sound. There the customs examined us, but not provocatively, no more in fact than I expected. They glanced round the boat, took notes from the papers we showed them, and after telling us to go to another quay, and being overcome by our objection to do this, they left us alone. We wandered round Malmo, and delighted in our wanderings. The big moat and city walls and old buildings, the broad streets and magnificent new buildings, and the flashing buoy to direct the traffic, these all took our fancy. A little after nine o'clock we began to feel thirsty, and turned our attention to where there were a few big hotels where we might have quenched our thirst at a price. We, however, wanted to drink Swedish beer in a Swedish pub. As in Skagen we failed, so here we failed to find one. And as in Skagen we triumphed after much diligence, so here in Malmo we were at last successful. But the success was less. The only place we could discover was a shop for sailor folk on the quay. A young man there played an accordion and made a vast deal of noise doing it. We changed a pound note at a ruinous rate of exchange, and we drank beer that was costly and of discouraging quality we left malmo next day and sailed north there was little wind and as it grew dark we just managed by the help of our sweep to crawl into the little harbor of Batviken on the island of hen the harbor was big enough for us and there was enough water alongside the little breakwater to enable us to tie there the inhabitants were waiting for us they helped us tie our lines and they laughed we laughed too I do not know why they laughed. We laughed to keep them our company. A lady presented us with a bill for harbour dues. This came to fourpence, and everybody laughed as I paid the money and took a receipt. Then a customs officer marched aboard, took our names and numbers, gazed at the ship's papers and proceeded to search the boat. I had to let him search and I let him do it without my help and with no words of caution. As a neutral result, he bumped his head a few times. He bumped pretty hard too and I know very well what it feels like. This damped a great deal of his official enthusiasm, and he did not finish the search with the same thoroughness as he showed when he began. Next morning we walked round Batvigan and the island of Hven. I did Batvigan, and Jackson did the island. He walked right across and back again, spending a little time in the sightseeing line, examining churches and ruins, and he did all this in a couple of hours. You can see by this that the island was not very large, Naturally, an island of Lilliputian acreage would have harbours of corresponding bigness. There were two, and Batvagen was the more important of them, for it had a regular service of steamers running into it from Landskrona. The steamers were small to fit the island and the harbour. If only the harbour of Batvagen could be transferred to my garden at home so that I could keep the Joan there all winter, couldn't I fit her out nicely and thoroughly? Badviggen is the kind of place that takes my heart. Few houses, few people, some boats and an interesting little harbour. A Swedish cruising yacht came in during the morning. A paid hand sailed a mother and four kids about, and such kids. Ages from four to fourteen, boys and girls, and they knew all about boats too. To see them stow sails and tie up alongside did one's eyesight good. But then all round this part of the world, boys and girls and women are as keen about sailing as any man, it's the place for yachts. We met one man who spoke English, and he assured us that we were the first English yacht to enter Batvagan Harbour, that no beer or spirits were to be obtained anywhere on the island, and that there were many men who were sorry that they had not brought any. They could have done with a drink of any sort, beer or whiskey, but especially whiskey. It was not till after this that I discovered Sweden was a dry country, and it was owing to this dryness that I was searched so minutely at every Swedish port I visited. Some smuggling had been carried on by small boats, and the Swedish customs were particularly keen on searching them, and the Joan looked like a likely smuggler on their way of thinking, with her four tanks and her many awkward corners. How I grew to hate these customs officers. The Joan was pretty full with packages, which all had to be stowed with care, and after a search, all the packing had to be done again. The officers nosed everywhere, tore open packets of food, which had to be carefully tied up again to preserve them from the wet. They pulled up the platform to look at the bilges, smelled the paraffin tank and tasted the water. One man wanted me to remove the table. I refused point blank and told him that if he shifted it and did not put it back properly, well, I forget what I did tell him, but I know it made a great impression upon him. He looked carefully to see how the table was fastened and gave up the job as a feat beyond his powers. And it was too. It had taken me half a day to fix it in position and it would have taken him a month to undo. I'm not sure that I shall ever be able to take it down again without the aid of a sledgehammer. Another man wanted me to open up a sealed tin of biscuits. Now it is quite enough trouble to keep food fit to eat without opening up what is safe from damp and mildew. I refused to open it. I showed him the name on the box and pointed out how it was sealed and told him why and I gave him a biscuit which had not been sealed up. He looked at it and sniffed it and hesitated, but my truculent attitude must have frightened him for he gave in and I preserved my tin of biscuits. I used to prepare things for customs officers as I got to know their ways. Five minutes' intelligent work in the Jones cabin could make it a fearful place to a clean and well-dressed official. A pail of water slopped on the floor and the boat hook, mop, broom and sweep arranged to discourage entry. Charts, books, clothes scattered over the bunks as if I had just been saved from a shipwreck, wet oilskins, placed so that no one could miss them, made a scene that repelled and disgusted a searcher. I used to watch their faces with glee and can easily recall the look of despair that overcame the determination to do their duty. From Batfagan we went in the afternoon to Helsingor. After failing to collide with a beautiful racing yacht, we tied alongside a coal wharf where there were a few fishermen in a water boat. There we were happy. Elsingore, or Elsinore is the place where Hamlet lived. They told me that they had his house, or tomb, or monument, or effigy, or something else connected with his memory, and I was urged to visit the affair. But as I was not interested, I did not go. A week later, the town was to celebrate a specially round-numbered anniversary of Hamlet's birth or death, I forget which, and the inhabitants of Elsingor thought that the Joan had come to see the show. The harbour is a fine little harbour, we obtained GMT and filled up with water, and a harbour which will do those two things for the Joan is one to visit again. We stayed there during the whole of the next day, as the wind was foul for Copenhagen, and they told us there was a strong current in opposition also. In fact, a dozen or more sailing ships were brought up outside waiting for a fair wind to take them south through the sound. Conditions changed next day, and we were able to make Copenhagen so that my partner could get back to London conveniently well that's the end of today's reading i hope you enjoyed it if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner where for five dollars a month you can help support this podcast if you do want to engage with more of the content there there's uh, unique videos more podcasts blogs lots of different things and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing that's patreon.com forward slash the mariner And that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.